All right, we're going to John chapter 15. We're going to continue uh, as we walk through this discussion on the the night of the Last Supper, the the night before Jesus' death, and all the things that he taught his disciples. And we're not going to get a lot of verses today, just five uh, verses. We're going to start at verse 9. And as we do, I want to tell you about a family story from, from our history, from our family vacation history, probably one that I don't know, maybe your family's as messed up as ours, so maybe you can relate to this. Um, we were on a vacation, probably, I don't know, three years ago, something like that, maybe four years ago, and we were down at the, the Jersey Shore, and of course, vacation is supposed to be a wonderful time of happiness and joy and fulfillment, and everybody's resting, there's no work, there's no school, there's no chores, you're just away on vacation, so what could be wrong, right? Everybody should be full of happiness and bubbly. Our family was not. Our family was, um, there were daggers and axes and knives getting thrown with, you know, words, not literal ones, uh, at each other. There was critique. There was fighting. There was arguing. Uh, I had to break up a few. We had to put boxing gloves on for a few. It was just, it was awful, you know. And we're about three days into this vacation, and I'm thinking, we planned for this. We set aside this time. We spent money on this. We're going to enjoy this vacation if it's the last thing I do. Um, of course, force doesn't really get a lot of joy. So I, we didn't, you know, I had to stop and think about it. And, and we were going out to dinner and there was fighting in, in our vehicle. And, and I don't know what possessed me, probably desperation. But we got to the restaurant. And I said, what we're going to do tonight is this. We're going to sit around this table and I want each of you to think of something that you really like about each person in his family. And we're going to go around and we're going to start with whoever we started with. I forget who we started with. Probably care. But we're going to start with whoever we started with and everybody at the table is going to say something that they really like about that person. And so we started. And everybody was like, well, this is awkward. And I was like, tough. It's better than fighting. So we're going to do it. And we started doing it. And we, we went around the table and shared what we thought about that person that we liked. And you know what? It's the best dinner we ever had. It was amazing how much joy came to us out of that. So I want to ask you, I want to ask you, if you had the opportunity to plan an event for the people that you care about, the people that you love, and your object was to produce as much joy as possible in their life, Something they would enjoy beyond anything they've ever enjoyed before. What would you plan? And you wanted to convince them in the deepest and strongest possible way that they were loved. You wanted to settle the issue once and for all that they were loved deeply, purely, truly. What would you do? Now, by the way, if I gave you that task... You're now commissioned, you now have a job to go plan that event for the people you love, for the people that you choose. That event, plan that event. I will tell you two other things. You have unlimited resources. You can spend whatever you want to spend. There is no limit to what you can spend on this event. And number two, there is no limit of time on you. You can take as long as you want to plan and you can have as long as you want for the event. What would you do? What would you plan? What would, what would your course of action be? And I never really thought about that before, but we're going to look in John uh, chapter 15 here because 
we're going to look how Jesus answered that question. I never thought about this before, but he says it here. Jesus certainly had all resources at his disposal, right? Very God in heaven, glory, Son of God, sitting on the right hand of God the Father. Everything he could possibly want. There was no limit to what he could spend. And he had all of time to plan whatever he wanted to plan. This event to bring enjoyment, to bring love. And he tells his disciples, and he tells by extension us, that the things he says here, the things he's done in the, in the, the gospel that we've read, are things that he did and said so that we would have joy and so that we would know the greatest love. So our human answers might be one thing, but today we're going to look at the divine answer. What God himself decided with unlimited resources, with unlimited time, how he was going to do what he thought was best to bring joy into your life, the greatest joy possible, and the deepest and truest love you'll ever know. And so let me just start, let me just read all the verses to you and then we'll come back and chunk it out because there's only five of them. So we're going to start at verse nine. We're going to get down to verse 13. Here's what it says. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Remember, Jesus has just gotten done talking about the vine and how we're the branches and we need to remain connected to the vine. Right on the heels of that, connected to that discussion, is what he's going to build on. He's going to use this, this discussion here, these words, to build on that picture of the vine and the branches. How the branches need to be connected to the vine. He's going to refer back to it by using the word remain a couple times. Which is the word that he used, the, the branches must remain in the vine. And we talked about how that was not a, a temporary brushing by or a in and out. It was a constant, stable, standardized, all the time connection to the vine. That, that a branch that was connected and disconnected and connected and disconnected would not be healthy. But a branch that is constantly connected has life and resources and Jesus said is fruitful. And fruit is that product of a meaningful connection to the Father, to to Jesus Christ in a life-giving way. And the question for us is, do we have that connection? Is that connection evident in your life? Are you experiencing what it would be like if you were a branch connected to the vine where Jesus is the vine and you are the branch? Are you receiving all of that? And so then on top of that, on the back of that, he's going to circle back to his command and how really loving Jesus changes us. It changes what we do. So he starts by saying, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, I don't know that we can, in, as, as people who you know, generally are in what has been a Christian nation, there is Christianity lots and lots of places in our country, and obviously you are in church, and so there is some familiarity for you about Christ and, and, 
and a loving God. Jesus loves you. John 3.16, one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, for God so loved the world. A loving God is not strange or unfamiliar to us, but I will tell you this. To the people of this time, a loving God was ridiculous. Gods don't love people. Gods punish people. Gods get irritated with people. Gods ignore people. Gods use people. Gods don't love people. That was their idea of what a God was like. And so for Jesus, who has claimed to be God the Father, to say, I love you, is a ridiculous statement in the context of religious thought at that time. And so Jesus says to his disciples, I love you love you. He makes this simple declaration and he makes it in a mind-blowing way with a comparative. He doesn't just say, I love you. He says, as the Father has loved me, that's how I love you. So he says, think and imagine if you can how the Father loves the Son. I mean, he uses the word Father to put a picture in our minds about how a parent loves their child. You you catch that, right? If you're a parent, you know that the love that God puts in your heart for a child is indescribable. It's beyond what I can explain to you. Tell me why you love your children. I can't. I don't. Tell me how you love your children. I could talk, but I can't get out of my mouth what's in my heart. Do you know what I mean? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus says, I love you. And he, he makes this declaration. And then he says to them, now remain in my love. It's a fact. I love you. And then he says, remain in my love. He used that picture with the word remain of the, the branch connected to the vine. And he used that word remain to talk about staying connected to the vine. And now Jesus gives us a little bit more about what that means spiritually. So how do I stay connected to the vine? Jesus says, stay in my love. As the Father loved me, so I love you. Now, stay in my love. Stay in it. What's that mean? It means literally, the the words literally mean, make your home in my love. Is that what you're doing? Making your home in His love. Does that mean that in order to do that, you have to be lovable in some way? Is that how you stay in his love? Because you become lovable? Is that what he's saying to you? Now make sure that you do what's right so I can love you. Is that what he's saying? Now we get confused because the next verse talks about keeping my commands. And that's, you'll remain in my love if you keep my commands. And so we start thinking that what he's saying is, all of a sudden, well, you better measure up. You better be good enough so that I'll love you. That's not what he said. He starts off with the declaration. How do we remain in his love? How do we stay in his love? The picture that Jesus has just given informs this. It's a picture of a vine that is always there, life-giving, ready. But in Jesus' pictures, the branches have to connect. They have to remain in the vine to get that life. The vine is there, ready to give life, but the branches have to decide whether to connect or not. And so when Jesus says, remain in my love, he's putting a challenge out in front of them. He's giving them instruction. Remaining in God's love 
is receiving love from Jesus Christ. Letting it be your life. Let it be, letting it be the refreshment of your soul. Like a branch needs the vine for life. It is literally to make Jesus' love your identity. I am loved. This is what Jesus is inviting you to. To live loved. To say, I'm the one God loves. Me. He loves me. To live as though that is real. And so the operative challenge, the operative question for each of us is, do I believe that's who I am? I am the one who Jesus loves. Then he goes on and he says, now if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love. That comes after Jesus' declaration, after the unconditionalness of Jesus' love. The question is not whether or not we are loved. The question is not whether or not we are lovable. The question is whether we will live in his love or not. What a tragedy that God would love us like this and that someone would choose to not live in his love. And so he says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. He's not saying obey so that you will be loved. He's saying obey because you are loved. And if you obey because you are loved, that idea is you are living in his love and it will produce this response. It's not earning God's work in us. It's letting God work in us as we obey his command. If you believe that God loves you, what would you do with the things he asks you to do? That's what he's saying. If you actually lived, if your identity is as secure as what Jesus stated, that I am loved, that he is concerned for me, that he will take care of me, that nothing he ever does in my life will be bad or harmful because he loves me. That's settled. Then when God gives me instruction, what will I do with it? And by the way, Jesus' focus as he talks about command is pretty clear. Uh, we just read verse, uh, down in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. He said back in John 13, this is a, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. In the context of this discussion, the command that he refers to is love one another. And in reality, what he's saying is, it, and, and if you go to 1 John 3, it says the same thing. You can't be uh, receiving love from God without loving other people. He's saying, I want you to love one another. And the only way you can do that, the only way you can keep that command is if you are receiving love from me. God is the source of love. And without being connected to the source, I cannot love like he loves. I can have shadows of it, I can have ideas, but I can't love like he loves. And so that's what he's saying there. He's saying, listen, keep my command. What is, what is his command? His command is love one another. It doesn't mean that's the only command we follow. You know, as long as I'm loving, I can do whatever I want. It's not what it says. The idea of loving is that it influences everything else about what I do. If I love people like God loves me, that will change and, 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 and conform me to all the stuff that God gives direction for in my life. In reality, Jesus is saying that loving Him changes what I live for. 
There is no Christianity in Jesus' definition about people who call themselves Christians but do not follow him. There is no Christianity like that in the Bible. There is no Christianity where it is say a prayer, get saved, go live how you want. There is no, that is not a Christian. That is not a child of God according to the word of God, according to the way Jesus defines it. What Jesus says, if you receive my love, you will live in my love. It will change you. So has it. So the summary of what Jesus has just taught them is, as the Father loved me, so I love you. Remain in my love. And the key to what he's about to say is to know that Jesus loves us like the Father loves Jesus. So do you know that you're loved? Do you know it? Is it up for grabs? What comes into your life that challenges that, that confuses that? Is God's love for you, is Jesus' love for you how you define yourself? Is it what drives how you live. Now, this next verse, and I, really, for me, this is the verse I want to land on today, verse 11, because it says this, and it's a, a, a wonderful, overwhelming statement. It says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This one verse, so attractive, and yet the topic is so confused at the same time. It is such a simple idea, and yet it gets so readily twisted. Jesus says, I have given you this command. I have called you to obey it. I have said these things to you. I've told you these things. I've told you that I love you like the Father loves me. I've described how to remain in my love with the picture of the branches and the vine. And the reason I've done all this, the reason I'm teaching you this, is so that you will have my joy in you. And that that joy will be filled up. So let's think about that. Think with me about that. So that my joy will be in you. Jesus doesn't say just remain in my love, let my love be in you, but remain in my joy. I want my joy to be in you. My joy to be in you. What he's saying is I want you to have joy like I have. So think about what Jesus' joy is. Jesus says, I have joy, I want it in you. Now he's talking on a night where it's clear he knows he's going to be betrayed. We saw him give the piece of bread to Judas and say, go do what you're going to do. He's talking to disciples about where I go, you can't follow. The Son of Man is going to be, lay down his life, he's going to be cut off. You can't come with me. I will die and rise again. He's talking about, he knows what's coming. So think about this. This This is challenging. Jesus' joy is not a joy that's based on tonight and tomorrow are going to go well. I know what's coming, and it's going to be good. Jesus' joy is based on something else. It is not driven by his circumstances. He knows he's going to sacrifice. He knows he's going to suffer, and yet he's talking about his joy that challenges everything humanly that we think about what is joy how do we get joy how do we lose joy he has described these things as coming from a connection with the father remain in my love which is the focus of what he's been teaching him so joy does not come from your environment joy does not come from what is around you from what you're experiencing Joy does not come from a lot of things that we think it comes from. 
It doesn't come from relaxation. Is Jesus going to relax tonight? He's going to the garden to pray where great drops of blood will be spilt because of the intensity of his suffering. It does not come, joy that Jesus has does not come from achievement. It doesn't come from thrills. Ooh, I know, I'm bored. Let me go do something exciting. Then I will have joy. We see joy as something out there that we get around and we pull in. Joy does not come from abundance. Having whatever you want. Joy does not come from having more than you need. Having enough so that everything is taken care of. Joy does not come from having enough or more than enough. Joy does not come from getting to do whatever you want. No one says no to you and you're allowed to do whatever you want. You are allowed to have it your way. You are allowed to follow and fulfill your desires. Why am I saying that? Because when joy goes away from your life experience, what do you look for to get it back? If I could just have this the way I want it. If that would just be how it is. If I could just have enough to do this. If I would just have enough money to do that. Jesus' joy the joy that he wants to give you, the reason he's come, the reason he's planned this whole event, the reason he's saying these words is so that his joy will be in you. But his joy is not like the joy we chase. One of the biggest things we think of as joy or a pathway to joy is escape. Life gets hard. Life gets uncomfortable. You have some people around you that say hurtful things to you or you've done some things you're ashamed of and you want to escape it. And our humanity believes if I can escape suffering that the escape will bring me joy. Doesn't it? The reason that my life, that I don't have joy is because of what's happening around me. If I could just escape this, then it would be possible for me to have joy. But think about where Jesus is and what Jesus said. Jesus embodied that human reaction when he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Escape. But how much joy would Jesus have had if he escaped? Do you ever think about that? Do you think if, if, there, if the cup had passed from him and, and he had not died and as the Son of God had not fulfilled his role, Do you think it would have produced joy? Do you think his joy would have continued on? As a matter of fact, it's interesting. The author of Hebrews describes this night and this event like this. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy? What? Do you have joy like that? Joy like Jesus has. And then the author of Hebrews says, so fix your eyes on him. Keep looking at him. Learn how joy causes you to endure. Because joy is not something that we bring in from the outside. Joy is something you have from the inside. It is a connection that comes from your soul being connected in a lasting and living way to Jesus Christ. It is joy is something that endures The joy in your life rises or falls based solely on the nature of your connection to the vine. You with me? 
There is nothing that defines your joy, nothing that provides your joy outside of or beside your connection to the vine. That's where it comes from. Joy does not come from piling up stuff that we enjoy. That's where we get it wrong. Well, I enjoy this, so it's a source of joy. Incorrect. Here's what I'll tell you. First of all, joy is not external. It's internal. It's something that God puts inside of you spiritually because of a connection with the Father. Secondly, the fact that you enjoy something is generally not about what you're doing. It's about what it does inside of you. It's about how it resonates with something inside of you. So it's not an external thing. It's still an internal thing. There's nothing wrong with enjoying stuff, but you cannot make those things that you enjoy your joy. You understand what I'm saying? Those things that you enjoy are meant to be enjoyed, but they are not meant to be your joy. Because when they are, we become enslaved to them. Jesus offers you a joy as stable as your connection to the vine, a choice to live in joy or not by the same choices which you will live in his love or not, as whether or not you will find life and hope in him or not. And he invites you to have that connection in a constant and life-giving way. By the way, it's not just my joy, it's my joy in you. Let me say this. Sometimes we get content to have joy around us as opposed to joy in us. The, pic- the picture of the vine and the branches is a great picture here because I don't, the, the picture is not a tree with all these separated, easily discerned branches. The picture is a vine and branches. Have you ever grown a vine? They get all twisty-tangly, don't they? And, and the, the, what Jesus said is that the gardener knows which branch is not producing anything. So the, kind of the idea there is you could have a vine with some branches that are all intertangled and it's hard to tell whose fruit it is, which branches belong to which fruit. I think Christians a lot of times get very satisfied with people around me having joy. And kind of like, I'll take credit for that. That's good enough for me. He's like, Jesus says, I'm not looking for joy to be around you. I want joy to be in you. I don't want you to be surrounded by people who have joy, not even Jesus' joy. I want my joy in you. I want a personal, specific connection to you that brings joy. And so what will he do with the vine and the branches? It says the Father cuts off the vines that don't produce. And I think in our lives, God comes in because he knows how susceptible we are to thinking that what I enjoy is my joy or that people around me being happy is enough for me. And what God does is he comes in and he starts to cut off those illusions. He takes away stuff that you enjoy because for you, it's become your joy. It's become the end instead of just a taste. It's not driving you to a deeper relationship with him. It's replacing a deeper relationship with him. And because of that, the Father who loves you comes in and starts to cut away. Because he wants nothing to get in the way of the joy he knows he can bring. And so if you're losing stuff in your life that you think will bring you joy, if it seems like every time you lose something, the joy in your life goes down, what you should do is stop and thank God that he's not letting you settle for something less than the joy that is Jesus' joy in you. That's a big faith thing. 
But that's the truth. The reason that those things that you enjoy are getting removed is because you've made them an idol. You've made them into a substitute for a relationship with God and nothing substitutes for that. And so he starts to cut those things away. Don't settle for lesser shadows of the real joy that he wants you to have. And it's not just my joy in you. It's your joy complete. Literally, your joy filled up. Not half joy, not a taste of joy, but abundant joy. Spilling over joy. And think about that picture. The only way that you can be filled up with joy is if the joy comes from inside of you. Because you can't get filled up if it's not from inside of you. Right? So if you got joy all around you, all that does, the more joy around you with emptiness inside, it just creates pressure on you to try to be more joyful. Because I got nothing inside of me. But what he says is, I will put joy in you and fill you up with joy so that it starts to spill over. People of God, do we have that kind of joy? Is that defining us? And if it isn't, I would go back to what Jesus just said, that the identity I have as one who is loved is a key, key to being filled with joy. Jesus wants his followers filled up with joy, complete and full. Joy that is not dependent on externals. Joy that is not dependent on other people. Joy that is not even dependent on feelings. Now, let me just say this before we move into the last verse here. Joy is not dependent on feelings. In other words, you can experience your feelings without it impacting your joy so long as you are experiencing your feelings in connection with the Father. As long as your feelings don't pull you away from the connection of living and remaining in His love, you can continue to experience joy while you experience negative feelings. In the garden, Jesus weeps. Sorrow, a man of sorrows, filled with joy. Does that blow your mind? Because we define joy as an emotion. Jesus says, My joy will be in you. And so if that's the truth, if this joy is not dependent on externals, then even the internal things of feeling can be something that I experience while being filled with joy. And so you can experience sorrow, but be filled with joy. You can experience fear, but be filled with joy. You can experience anger, but be filled with joy. How can you do that? Because joy is not dependent on what's happening around me. Joy is not dependent on my humanity, where my emotions will respond. Joy is dependent on whether I'm doing this connected to the Father or not. Does that make sense? I mean, not to your mind, because I know that's crazy, but to your soul. Does it make sense to your soul that you should live with a joy that doesn't go up or down based on whether you're having a good day or not? Because some people believe that joy is basically turning off my emotions. If I'm afraid, if I'm sad, if I'm scared, if I'm upset, just turn it off so I can have joy. That's not the picture Jesus gives. He says, my joy is something that fills me with hope, with eagerness for life, with eagerness for a relationship with my Father and forever because of the relationship I have with Him. You know, when we got married, I said to Dana, like all grooms would say to their wives, I don't care what comes in life, 
as long as we're together. Has anybody ever said that? I don't care what we have to face as long as we're together, right? What am I acknowledging there? I'm acknowledging that I will have joy in my relationship with her, regardless of what comes in life. And something about us goes, yeah, that's right. I will enjoy my life because of who I'm with, not because of what happens to me. And that's the same thing God's inviting you to. Will you respond to that invitation? All right, and then Jesus finishes this whole thing by talking about a greater love. And so he talks about, this is my command. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says he's also instructing them so that they can experience not just full joy, complete joy, so that they can experience greater love and so that they can love like he loves. The love that they receive and the love that they give is not based on lovability. It's not based on worthiness of love or performance that measures up. It is a love that comes from the very core of His being. Jesus' love for you depends on His nature, not your nature. So you can rest in it. Because you know if it rested on you, you'd blow it. But it rests on Him. He'll never blow it. By the way, His love does not force a response, does it? It provides the open door to both receive His love and live in His love, but He lets you choose. That's what love does. Love provides an open door, but then lets you choose whether you'll take it or not. And if you refuse to take it, it lets you live in your consequences, doesn't it? Jesus said, I'm come to give life. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. But there's a lot of people that aren't going to have life, aren't there? Well, you mean he doesn't love them? No, God so loved the world. But love does not force a response. Love does not make sure that just because I care about you, that you get it right. Love says, you're probably going to get it wrong, but I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to keep the door open for you to receive it. We think that we love people, but I think if we put our love next to the love Jesus has for us, that we settle for lesser loves. We need love. God created us to need to be loved and to give love. We need to love in a way that is settled and steady We are desperate for love that is not earned or conditional. And when we are loved in a way that is conditional, we are damaged at the depths of our soul. Jesus says, here's my command. Love like I've loved you. Love one another. Love each other. I'm not going to give you a whole list of commands. I'm going to give you a command, one command. Love each other. He calls us to a love that is game-changing. Love as I have loved you. And so what does it mean to love like Jesus loves? According to Jesus, what does that mean? Let that sink into your head. Do I love like he loves? It means, like Jesus this night, that I'm not going to focus on the other person's happiness because the disciples are not going to be happy. They're going to be scared, sad, traumatized, but they're going to be loved. It doesn't mean that love focuses on my happiness or satisfaction, which unfortunately is the way a lot of people mistakenly define love. 
They talk about how much they enjoy their family because of how much they love their family. But it so often gets twisted into this. I can't stand to see my family suffer. And so I step in and make sure that they don't because I can't stand it. You're actually serving yourself there. You may not realize it. But you're making sure that their life is what you can take. Not what they need. What you can take. And so I would say, put your love up against Jesus' love. Love like Jesus loves me, and I don't live by my passions, by my feelings, by my ups and downs. I don't go with what feels right. I go with what is loving. Jesus says, greater love has no one, meaning this is the greatest love, the greatest love of all. All right, you got the song going in your head? The greatest love of all is learning to love yourself, right? No, not really. Close, but not really. The greatest love of all that Jesus describes is knowing you are loved in the way God loves you. That's what he describes. Do you know it? Do you live in it? And loving others like Jesus loves you, that I learn to love like Jesus loves. We look at love like a battery, you know? I love them, and I, and I filled it up, and I recharged my love, and then I drain, 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 drain. Okay, I need a new battery. Let's get a new battery, and then I do. Jesus describes it like something you plugged in. Something that has an unlimited power supply. Is that how you love people? Does your love wear out? Jesus's doesn't. Is your love changeable? His isn't. Clearly, love is not a feeling. Greater love has no one that he lay down his life for his friends. It is not a pleasant, enjoyable experience to lay down your life, is it? Love is not all about great songs and butterflies and warm feelings. Love is something else. Almost everything that we think naturally as human beings about what love is, is beside the point in Jesus' description. It is stuff that happens incidentally and off to the side of the core of what love is. Jesus describes love as a value system. Lay down my life for you. My life or yours. I value your life more than my life. A value system. That's what Jesus describes it as. Is that how we love? That I choose you over me. Let me just, before I get finished with that thought, let me just go to this, because sometimes this gets twisted, especially in Christianity. When we talk about sacrificial love, we do not talk about sacrificing your connection with the Father. Right? Does that make any sense in this context? How can I love if I sacrifice my connection? And yet, that's what so many people do. I love this person so much that I will destroy my spiritual life for them. I will stop doing what is needful for me spiritually. I will allow my spiritual connection with the Father to be gone because I love you so much. Does that make any sense? I can love you then, can I? According to this. So you are not sacrificing your spiritual well-being. I've said this and said this and said this. There will never be a time that you are called to sacrifice your spiritual well-being for the sake of love. That is not loving. That is the absence, the end of love. Second thing I want to say is love is not self-destructive. Sometimes we get this mixed up. He lays down his life for his friends. Um, some people get to really dark moments and they hear the enemy talking, uh, take a truth like this and they, it twists, he twists it inside of them. And so they go like this. Well, if 
this is the greatest love, that I lay down my life for those I love, then I might want to take my life, lay down my life for their sake. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus did not take his life. He laid down his life. They're two different things. That is not a loving thing. That is a lie. That is a selfish thing. What Jesus describes is choosing to give your life because it's needed. Because a life is going to get taken, which one will it be? By the way, this means you can have the greatest love for people you don't even know. How many police officers and firefighters and soldiers have laid down their lives for people they don't even know? Right? How many martyrs of the faith have laid down their life for people they don't even know? This is greater love. This is love greater than any other love, the fullest measure of love, just like the fullest measure of joy. And Jesus says, I told you this. I've taught you this. I'm telling you this so that you will have greatest joy and greatest love. And so we're going to close with a song today, just kind of like get our, grab a hold of this truth, process this truth before we go out to live, to live like this is true. And as we do, I'm asking you to consider what is the greatest love in your life? What is your ideal love? And where do you look to find joy? Maybe in your life, the Lord has been doing that stripping away process, stuff that you enjoy, because he wants you to have complete joy, not some small measure of it. Maybe today your struggle is, will by faith you trust him to do that? Will you believe that what he's doing is a process that is good and loving and has hope? Or will you keep grabbing for joy that you understand that's right around you, complaining about what you lost? My other question is this, will you believe that you are loved? Will you believe it? Maybe you don't believe it because you haven't received it. Maybe you're not a child of God and you've never come to that place where you've accepted His love. The offer is there for you. This moment, this day, to receive His love, to respond to His invitation to find life in Him alone. The true vine, there's no other vine, there's no other life, to find it in Him alone. To turn from everything else and to trust Him with your life. But I think, to me, the biggest burden on my heart is for believers who are loved with an eternal, everlasting, enduring love that never grows weary, that never faints, that never dries up. But we live dried up because we live like we're not loved. We live like His love doesn't matter, like it's not life to us. And so today is a day to return to the life and love and joy and peace that come through a constant and living connection to Jesus. I will say this, there is no better way to live. There is no greater joy in this life, and there is no greater love that you will ever know.